I remember The Last Temptation of Christ coming out in 88 or 89 and a picket. I was at university in Canterbury and there was a picket of people outside the cinema trying to, Christians trying to convince people not yeah. to go in. Yeah. Um, so again, cancel culture is new. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and, but also there's this very dangerous thing. And as you know, it's my obsession in my book and most of the things I write. There's, there's this very dangerous dip that was once something great mm. and we've all lost it and we need to get back to it. Yeah. And that's not true. Hi everyone, thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Chatter. Before we get started, I just have a few quick messages. First off, don't forget to like, share and subscribe to this podcast. It's the best way that you can help us grow. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It's going to help us rank higher and get more and more views and therefore bigger and better guests. Links for everything will be in the description below. So please enjoy the podcast. So... Here we are, round two. Although in person this time, so yeah. Uh, so yeah, man. Well, welcome to the show, Otto. It's uh, it's a pleasure. Great Thanks to have you here. Me. Yeah, no problem. So um, I mean, this is this is going to go out next week sometime. So be, I don't want to spend too much time on on Boris Johnson, as you know, we don't he's know if he's still here. here by the time we get to this. What? Um, but what do you what do you think uh, when this goes out next week? Are we still going to have so, Boris Johnson? <laughs> I don't think Boris Johnson's going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, and I know everybody else is saying that, apart from sort of wish, wishful <laughs> thinkers on Twitter. Um, so I don't think he's going anywhere anytime soon. I do, however, think he's doomed. <laughs> so we've got Schrodinger's Johnson, yeah? Both living and dead at the same <laughs> time. Um, and the and uh, the, you can see it. You know the Scottish, uh, the leader of the Scottish Conservative Party has clearly seen that he's politically toxic, and it's time to distance himself from it. Mm. You've got movements, you know, manoeuvres going on. Clearly, Rishi Sunak is manoeuvring. Clearly, Liz Truss in her unbridled support for Boris Johnson <laughs> will will carry on to support him right up until the moment she stabs him in the back. Um, he's clearly a dead, dead duck prime minister. But who wants to take that poisoned chalice mm. and sit on that, you know, and sit on that poisoned throne if there is such a thing? Because this is a bad time to become leader of the Conservative Party. Um, so I think once the pandemic burns out, which it's very likely to do by the spring. Mm. Um, and once those local elections start, I mean, there's a possibility that he could turn the whole thing around in a period of four or five months mm. and suddenly produce some miracle out of a hat. And people do say he's the comeback king, mm. but I don't actually believe that because he's he's never really come back from anything as bad as this. So I don't. I think he's. I think he's doomed, mm. and I suspect. He'll be he'll be gone sometime, either before or around the autumn. Mm. I guess I guess they probably don't want to take over too early because they don't want like whoever all the people lining up to stab him in the back probably don't want to don't want to take over too early and then suffer from 
having to govern for 18 months before they have to run in an election in, was it 2024? Yeah, but you see, also, I think they would probably have to hold some kind of second election because they'd have very little. I mean, when Theresa May became prime minister, she felt obliged to hold an election, mm. an early election. Mm. When Boris Johnson became prime minister in 2019, he held a fairly snap election. Mm. I, I think given everything that's happened, if, say, Rishi Sunak was a was anointed the king. Anointed. Um, I think um, he too would probably feel obliged to hold an early election. How do you think Rishi Sunak would go down with the British public? So I've been giving this. <laughs> I've been giving this a lot of thought. I <coughs> Rishi Sunak would be the richest prime minister by far in our history. I yeah, did actually start I'm trying curious. to. Tot, I did actually start trying to tot up some numbers. I think he's probably richer than the combined wealth of all the prime ministers that have gone before since about (laughs) possibly possibly forever. I mean, he's an, via his marriage, Mm. he is an incredibly rich man. And that I think will play badly with the public because you've got rising inflation, rising cost of living. Mm. You've got uh, all the trouble down the line that the pandemic and Brexit and things will bring. Mm. And you're going to have this super rich guy in power. And that will be a real target for his enemies and for the Labour Party. They'll say, they'll call him out of touch Rishi or something, you know. Mm. That, yeah, I mean, that's I, that's I, basically what I see happening, Yeah, if I'm honest. I just see it becoming this thing where, like, do you want a billionaire to be prime minister? Mm. Like, that's literally, I, I just, I can't see that happening. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I, I have no idea, actually, to be fair, what's going to happen with the next election. Like, uh, do you I, see, do you see new also parties? not as popular with the Conservative Party faithful as Liz Truss. Mm. So, I mean, the, the money is on Liz Truss. But, but I but you see I think really yes but no no I mean if you don't want the conservatives in power anymore well, and I'm quite open about it. I mean I'm not party political I I used to be part of political I used to be a member of the Labour Party I used to vote Labour always but I'm not that person anymore uh, and I would much rather have a Labour government or some kind of coalition government than the conservatives they they they're a you know they're a dead duck mm. government, and, and they, they have been for, for since 2016, really. Mm. They, all of this messing about for five years has not done the people of this country any good. Mm. So I think a clean slate is needed. And Liz Truss, as leader of the Conservative Party, would be great because the public hates her. <laughs> I just, every time, every time I think about Liz Truss as, as running a campaign, I just think that they're gonna they're gonna put that picture, that stupid picture of her in the tank. Mm-hmm. And have and you ever seen the one of her next to the coffee machine? That's an absolute no. Tanker. So, so she's got. I think it's unless my mind is going crazy. She's got a red phone, but it's for some reason it's got a cord, and it's it's mm-hmm. awful, a truly dreadful photograph. And you and in the background, in a surreal twist, there's a picture of the Dulux. Uh, dog oh yeah um which she you know being a sort of obsessive about detail i went down that rabbit hole and she had been to the dulux factory and met the dulux dog <laughs> incredible <laughs> oh. yeah. perks to the job i guess that's the job yeah uh, <laughs> do you think what do you think um actually where did where did labor lose you so 
Labour, Labour's long path to losing me happened with Tony Blair and the Iraq war. Um, actually, when to, I mean, I, I was in my 20s when Tony Blair uh, became leader of the Labour Party. I had joined it just before when Smith was briefly leader. So 94, 5, 6, something like that. Mm. I was just out of university and I, and I joined the Labour Party. Um, and I quite liked Tony Blair at first, but for the main reason that he was a winner. <laughs> and, you know, and, and people forget it now. When Tony Blair came to power in 97, there was a genuinely, genuinely good feeling in this mm, country. Yeah. People were feeling good about being British. Uh, things like the Union Jack, you know, which had been far-right symbols for a mm. long time. You know, the National Front and the BNP had taken control of that flag. And because of Britpop mm. and because of Tony Blair, the, the there was a sort of return to feeling good. It was okay to be British mm. and it was okay to kind of feel good about your country. Um, and Pinochet, you know, all of that, when Pinochet was arrested, put under house arrest, it was all good. It was good early on. Mm. I mean, it wasn't perfect. <laughs> uh, and the spin machine was in full throttle. But um, Blair lost me during the Iraq war and I didn't vote Labour again until um, Brown came in. So I voted for Brown in that election. And then I've kind of come and gone mm. depending on... Yeah. Well, I mean, I voted Labour in the last general election, but I live in a solid... I mean, Lewisham, mm. uh, where I am, all, all, this, all the Lewisham seats are so solidly Labour. I mean, you could put a pop plant up and it would win, you know. Yeah. yeah. I'm interested to see... How do you think Jeremy Corbyn's party is going to do? Because I know he's not thinking of finding, what is it, the Peace and Justice Party, or that was the floated name or whatever. But how do, do you think, how do you think they would do? Or do you, th do you think we'll see a lot of like new parties at the next election? So there's a huge growth in political parties. It's a proper growth industry. Mm. I can't remember how many form a year. Again, I did write about this a year or two back. Some, something like four or 500 parties <laughs> What? <laughs> really? Yeah. A lot of them are local yeah. or like, you know, legalized cannabis or something like that. Um, there's an enormous amount of parties get formed. If, you know, Corbyn's, Corbyn's leadership and legacy is very cult-like. And like, people hate people saying that, but it's true. Yeah. It's true. And he was never, in a country where first past the post is the system of, mm. of, of yeah. getting into power, yeah. you have got to get those people in the middle to vote for you. You can't just ignore them. And you can't, you know, if we didn't have first past the post, mm. if we did have some kind of proportional representation, Corbyn's Labour could have done very well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But <clears throat> we don't have that system. So you can't pretend otherwise you can't wish for something that will never mm. materialize and likewise i can't see a corbyn party winning any seats at all really no. i'd see him win the few like for me honestly it depends on i think um what other parties like really emerge because to me i've i i feel like i've watched both of the main parties betray their base in a way over the past two years and I, I kind of just expect there to be some sort of backlash to that in, in people losing seats. Well, I, I hate to make the comparison, but think about UKIP. 
Yeah, UKIP was a huge political movement, mm. huge support, massive membership. Uh, they managed two MPs in total. Both of those were Tory defectors, Mark Reckless mm. and um, uh, Douglas Carswell. Mm. Carswell actually did win back his seat. Um, uh, I think they held a by-election. I can't remember. So much has happened. Yeah. Carswell did win back his seat. Long time Re- ago. Reckless didn't. Mm. Right? Now, if a movement like UKIP, which had a huge groundswell of popular support, mm. can't win seats, Nigel Farage yeah, never really won a popular, seat. Yeah. yeah, I think Corbyn, even Corbyn on his own, would struggle. Mm. I mean, where would he stand? I well, I assume he'd stand in Islington. He well, might well do. But you see, not everybody in Islington is going to vote for Jeremy. I mean, I know someone in that constituency who is very, very left-wing, who was totally bought into the Corbyn thing mm. and then just lost faith in him. Really? Yeah. What was it that made them lose faith? I think he, he got frustrated about Brexit mm. uh, and... He was really walking a tightrope. Like, Cor- Corbyn walked a constant tightrope. He, he annoyed so many people in yeah. his own party. Yeah. 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 Oh, such a difficult issue to come down on one side of, though. You know, it's, 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 it's what we were talking you know, about before I think I would have had more respect for him if he'd just come out and said, I am a Brexiter. Mm, you think? <sighs> I mean, at see, least he had just been transparent. He was transparent about so many other things. You know, some of those sort of pointless stands against the British system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I quite liked, mm. you know, don't yeah. you wouldn't kneel for the Queen and things like that. Yeah. Or, yeah, I mean, those things I quite like, mm. you know, it's good so, people yeah. are saying that. Yeah, it's but, not being a member of the awkward squad. It's it's saying, well, I'm not necessarily going to go along with it. Yeah. But on Brexit, he was so woolly. Mm. He said he was backing Remain. Yeah. And I get the feeling he didn't know what the best answer was. Well, I was still a, don't know he what the was a, a was. He was a lifelong yeah. Brexiter. He mm. had always voted against the European Union. Mm. He was instinctively, I don't want to talk about him in the past, he is instinctively mm. a Lexiter. He's a left-wing Brexiter. Mm. There's a position there. Because yeah. I'm, I'm very sympathetic yeah. to that argument. I mean, but the reason I don't want Brexit is because I think the Tories are going to use it to make themselves well, very rich. And yes. <laughs> um, so it's because, like, if you're thinking about it, then he's he's trying to address it on a, a case of it's like, look, on principle, I believe, or he believes at least, that like Britain would be better outside of the EU. Sort of. Yeah. That's vaguely what his position has been for me. But then he's also looking at, well, who's the people? Who are the people that are going to take us through that? And will they make it worse for ordinary people? Yes. And and, and I think that's where the the real debate came from, and that's probably why he was. So on the fence about it, and on on like not even I think unwilling to commit to a position. I think he was unable to, like in his own head. Well, he knew that the vast majority of Labour Party voters were instinctively Remainers. Mm. His position was a very nineteen seventies position on on the on the EC. Mm. Uh, See, I get the feeling, right, that if he had made the case. Like you've said, like if you just came out and went, look, here's why I don't like the EU. Yeah. I get the feeling he might have got a lot of support for that, in for even from the people who would be like ardent Remainers. Because if he came out, like for what age was I? What was that? Twenty sixteen. So I would have been uh, twenty two. Yeah. So the for me, I was yeah instinctively pro Remain. Mm. Loved Europe. 
etc cetera, etc cetera. but if someone had come out and like explained to me like the economic case for leaving the eu and the sort of the idea that we want more economic control at home or more political control or like i don't know in exactly what specific area they would have gone or how they would have made the argument but i feel like i would have been open to that that argument but you know they maybe maybe you're right and they hindered themselves i, I mean i mean the whole problem with the referendum is it is so complicated and nuanced right <laughs> i mean some of the thing you know people always i mean I, I sort of made a name for myself during the 2016 referendum that's where my twitter account sort of took off really um, and people call me a remainer and a remainer and all these kinds of things when I was in my early 20s, I was implacably opposed to the <laughs> I, I thought it was a I thought it was a globalist project and and I uh, and I objected to it. Mm. Um, do you still I, think it is a globalist project? No. I, 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 there where, are where, did you, where did you where did you change you, like your mind? I can that. tell you the moment I changed my mind, I was in a bar in <laughs> in Bali, bizarrely, <laughs> a globalist. Um, I was backpacking, and it was about 1993. So it was around. I can't remember when Maastricht was. It was around the time mm. of the Maastricht uh, Treaty, and I was I was backpacking with with a girl, my girlfriend at the time, and. Um, we met this Dutch couple, and the woman whose name I'm afraid I can't remember now. Um, we were all chatting, and she said she she sat there and just gave the most positive case mm. for membership of the EU, the end of war, the end of conflict, and she said we're brothers and sisters within Europe, mm. and it was you know I was. I was peace and love back then. I'm still peace and love now, but falling to pieces. Uh, and I and I sat there and I thought, she's right. Fair enough. Well, I mean, I, she, she must have made a compelling she case. She made a very compelling case. It was an emotional case. Mm. It wasn't a political or a um, financial case. Mm. It was a purely emotional case. And I didn't actually give it a huge amount of thought subsequently, but that, that was the thing with our membership of the EU. Everything that improved our lives subsequently kind of happened on the quiet. Mm. You know, the freedom of movement stuff, the um, the immigration, which I fully supported, and we all I, we all enjoyed and benefited from um, mm. the freedom of movement. Mm. The um, all of it. I, I I became very happy to travel through Europe and mm. think. Uh, you know, I live here as well. This is part of my where I can live and move and travel. I didn't necessarily do it, but a lot of my friends did. A lot of my friends, because I went to the University of Kent, a lot of my friends were Europeans, mm. you know, French, German, Belgian, whatever. And I and I felt very comfortable with that. Because mm. I don't want to sit behind a wall. No. I don't want to be fenced in. No. I, I want to be somebody who can roam and whose children can roam and 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 I don't want to judge people on where they come from or what they do. That's who I am fundamentally. So of course I was pro-remain. It doesn't mean that I like the Brussels machinery mm. or the, or you know some of the politicians in the European Parliament. Mm. Uh, it doesn't mean I like all the bureaucracy, but the emotional case mm. really sang to me, and it still sings to me. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I totally, I, I can, I'm, I'm so torn in my high yeah. head, you know, because I, I, I feel like 
part of the problem that we have with politics at the minute is everyone feels like their lives are out of their own control. Mm. And then they vote for the thing that whatever they think will make them have some sort of more of a say over their life or just a screw you to whoever is in power or whoever might want to take power leads people to, yeah, we just end up with increasingly crazy polarization. Mm. And the the problem for me is that I feel like like my vision for how we would fix our current like problem with that, at least anyway, would be like more um or oh, what is the term i talked about it with chris kendall uh subsidiarity where things are like dealt with at, literally at the most local level possible mm. and i'm not 100 percent that that's compatible with like the amount of tiers of government that we have i feel like the further away from where people are that the decisions are being made the more they get like resentful at the decisions yeah but that's why a sort of federal system of government is a good one mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, I'm not opposed yeah, to that. I, I mean, you know, I mean, the, the Scottish Parliament is clearly, clearly popular with mm. a large percentage of the people of Scotland. You know, London's GLA is a bit cruddy, really. Mm. I, mean, yeah. I mean, who even knows who their local assembly member is? Uh, you know, um, uh, but the mayor's popular. And locally made decision making is a good idea because mm. it because local people know what the problems are in their immediate area. Mm. That doesn't mean that you can't have sort of local government mm. with power and, and muscle, and you can have a larger government which does something on your behalf. Mm. I mean, that was that was the huge paradox yeah. of the Brexit case. Mm. They wanted to take back control, but they were all unionists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're literally unionists. <laughs> you know, Jacob Rees Mogg is the biggest, stronger union. together, but stronger not two together. together yeah, or... <laughs> you know, but it all stops at the English Channel, yeah, yeah? <laughs> or, or the Irish oh. border. Mm. Yeah, mm. I mean, it, um, yeah. it's a complete nonsense. Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess I mean, the case they would make would be that um, it's one nation. As such, like they would, so they would say that, like, I mean, I, I, I thought that Scottish independence was a bad idea, but it, to to be honest, I've changed my position on that. I now think it's none of my business. <laughs> right, that's Fair. my that's my position now. It's now none of my business. I'm English. I live in London. I do not live in Scotland. If the people in Scotland want to decide their own destiny. It's entirely their choice, mm. and, and people like me in London should shut up about it and let them make the decision. It doesn't. It doesn't affect me. I don't mm. even go on to holiday to Scotland very much. So, but you know that. But but in 2015, I kind of opposed it emotionally because I thought that just as I believed the European Union mm. was better to be part of something bigger, I thought it was better for the people of these islands to all have, you know, yeah. free movement and all those kinds of things. Um, the people who were making that exact case did a total reverse ferret within <laughs> one year and were arguing the opposite case mm. for Brexit. Yeah. The, the, the most vocal anti-Scottish uh, independence voices then totally reversed their position. Mm. And, you know, the hypocrisy of it. Yeah. But, it, it, yeah, it's amazing how things can become... Like the, when you look at an issue and, and then people will, like we were talking about before, but with yeah. the, before we started there briefly with the, with the pandemic, that the people can, 
just adopt the position that their team is taking is so completely crazy to me. Mm. And I mean, there's definitely times when I've been guilty of this, like 100%. Like I, I, I pr probably couldn't pinpoint exactly when, but I know it's probably happened. <laughs> but yeah, we were talking about the, this, this politicis, uh, politicization of the, of the pandemic um, is, is baffling. Like how do, how do you, what do you think the cause of, of that politicization, uh, politicization of, of, of like, because it's the politicization of everything. Like, where do you think the root of that is? So, I mean, yeah, we were talking about this before we started. And I thought, we were on a right roll, actually. Mm. <laughs> um, it's, uh, I, I think that's as old as the hills. You know, yeah, so I, I think it is. You know, if you, um, I, mean, I wrote early on in the pandemic, I was commissioned by Politico to write, a, and Byline, actually, I wrote two of them. So a sort of history of the 1918-20 pandemic, just to see what had happened. Mm. Because a lot of people kind of blanked it out. Yeah. We, all, we all knew the 1918 pandemic had yeah. happened. And there was that statistic that was a sort of pub quiz favourite, which mm. was, you know, more people died in the pandemic than died in World War One. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We didn't actually ask the scale of how many people died yeah. in the pandemic because yeah. it was in it was somewhere north of 55 million yeah. people yeah. died in the 1918 yeah. pandemic. And so, that's with a much smaller global population as well. Much smaller much smaller global population, uh, much less movement. Although, of course, World mm. War One was ending, so people were moving around in Europe and mm. America. But um, what was incredibly striking about that experience of writing about it were, were the echoes with now. So, for example, mm. there were race riots in the United States. Fuck off. Yep. No way. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what was it? Was it was it like civil civil so rights in, related? In, or so the pandemic came in. I think three or I think four waves in the United States. So you had the initial one in early 1918, then the one everyone remembers, which was the second wave mm. in, uh, which effectively um, helped end the First World War mm. because once the pandemic ran riot through the German trenches, uh, it was like a, it was like another. Uh, it was like another enemy uh, against the conflict, yeah. uh, particularly hit the Germans. Mm. Um, anyway, then they went staggered into 1919 and another wave hit uh, in the spring of 1919. During that pandemic, a uh, young boy whose name I'm afraid I can't remember because I, I haven't written this for two, uh, I was writing this two years ago, but a young black boy uh was um paddling off uh in a lake off the coast of chicago uh, and the beaches of chicago were segregated and um there was already a big swell in a sense of identity among black americans mm. because yeah, they'd fought millions of black that. Americans yeah. had gone and fought in the First World War from 1917 onwards. Mm. And there was a movement. And of course, well, not of course, a lot of black Americans were living in poverty. So they were hit by the pandemic much harder than um, the white population mm. uh, in New York. And, and there was no sanitation yeah. and there was, very, there was no health care. Yeah. So 
black Americans were, were well, like massively, yeah. massively hit by the pandemic. And this boy was paddling off the coast of Chicago and his raft drifted into the white side of the beach. And adults started throwing stones at him. And the boy fell off his raft, couldn't swim and drowned. And uh, there was a surge on the other side of the beach where the black Americans uh, were enjoying the summer sun, the spring sunshine. They surged over onto the other side. There was a fight, and the whole thing exploded. So there were riots in Chicago. There were riots in New York. And then finally, there was a mass demonstration in Washington, D.C., right outside the White House on the very patch of grass where, uh, well, almost 100 years later, Donald Trump would incite a mob to go and storm the Capitol. Yeah. I mean, you you absolutely, I mean, you know, as Abba said, you know, (laughs) the history book on the shelf is always repeating itself. You know, it's... It is incredible. Mm. Um, and that, uh, those riots, which have now been forgotten almost everywhere else, although not in America, mm. they, but uh, those riots uh, had a, a beneficial effect. They kind of spawned the early civil rights movement. Mm. Um, and the civil rights movement kind of came out of the pandemic incredibly, mm. something which most people had forgotten, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so there was that going on. In addition, in the United States during the 1918-20 pandemic, <clears throat> you had a whole anti-mask movement, you know, particularly in San Francisco. Uh, and they, because in San Francisco, they made it a law that you had to wear a mask. Mm. And people rebelled. People rebelled, that's just. Libertarian right-wingers yeah. rebelled. Don't, I, I mean, you don't tread on me, like you Lee. Could not, you could not. <laughs> about to say it like that yeah yeah and and i have read a case but not a very convincing one <laughs> that the origins of the nsdap you know the nazi party kind of came from the pandemic See, right, as this, well. right this yeah. is what i was going to bring up um uh it's a i don't know if you've read his work it's a guy called dr randy thornhill so he's done um the the, the concept is called parasite stress so basically uh he has been working on this for like 40 years and he looks at um he's looked at countries all around the world and they look at the prevalence of infectious disease in each country. Um, and obviously that's focused around the equator where yeah. Yeah, it's the hottest and there's the most <clears throat> disease. And the more infectious disease there is in a country, the more likely the government is to be right-wing and authoritarian. So like that push towards the top right of the political compass. Um, and they have like a 0.7 correlation on this. So it's not insignificant at all. Um, and then they looked at some data uh, from the number of deaths from Spanish flu in region by region in Germany. And they find that the correlated like almost identically was the number of deaths and the number of people who voted for the Nazis. Yeah, terrifying, right? Um, and I, I get the feeling that it's it, because the, the idea is that we become more right wing because was it like there's like the psychological yeah it's the psychological link to um so the 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 sort of like cleanliness orderliness Mm -hmm. like part of of people's personality of like that big five trait is like quite highly correlated with right-wing um political thought 
Um, and the theory is at least that it's because you're afraid of the the new, the uh, the, the outside, the yeah, the unclean, basically. So it's the other becomes the, the scary thing because especially in times of disease, you it's like say like in our history like hundred thousand years ago it was like the that next tribe over the hill yeah they could they could have been the ones that yeah, killed yeah, you and therefore it, disease yeah and like obviously we're not in that position now and we should have the intelligence to move beyond that but there's it's still in there you know i mean the beneficial things that came out of that first pandemic were things like the national health service mm. i mean event, obviously it didn't come mm. spring up in the 1920s but no. the but the the grassroots the the green shoots of the national health service and health services everywhere came out of that pandemic and people realized the need for some kind of joined up free at point of use health service mm. so i do i mean the anti nhs people have been kicked into the long grass now um you yeah. know uh, well, I no mean, political party, no political party is going to stand for the. They might be trying to do it by the back door, yeah, but no say. political party is going to stand on a, um, you know, on a platform of trying to get rid of the NHS anytime soon because we've all been through this. Yeah, I think good things could come. History doesn't. History might repeat itself, but it doesn't mean that we have to go down the same paths. Mm. You know, uh, the events can act as a sort of warning. Yeah, and most people throughout the UK <clears throat> kind of saw the sense of the guidelines and things. They might now be angry with the hypocrisy mm. of the government, and rightly so. But at the time when we were all under threat, most people saw the kind of sense in it. Mm. And I really noticed, actually, you know, I live just down the road here in Lewisham. We really got hit by Omicron. Really? Massive. Yeah, I've heard one point, everyone was telling me not to come to so London. I think at one point, we were the third highest number of cases in the country. I think at one point, we briefly peaked. Um, what I noticed, and it's very anecdotal, what I noticed was that although people were pretty good at wearing masks in mm. Lewisham, uh, during the arrival of Omicron, I noticed mask use got maybe 98, 99%. Mm, and that was the same thing in Belfast. So that's because people could no longer pretend it wasn't happening mm. because everybody knew someone had had it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah it's, it wasn't government. It wasn't government. It it's wasn't amazing. Government it's amazing how people's it, it was like personal yeah. experience. It's amazing how that can be just like in, incredibly more powerful than yeah than and like on the other side as well. It's like some someone can hear like one adverse reaction to a vaccine and then they're like immediately like no. It's uh, it's the, like anecdotal like people's own experiences like are far more like capable of shaping I think their own way of looking at things than whatever government messaging might be like yeah, 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 hundreds true, like yeah. day. Facebook effect, doesn't mm, it? Yeah. People will believe a friend on Facebook over almost anything else. Mm, yeah. 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 But I mean, that's just, I think it's probably natural. Like you're never going to get people to like not believe the people they know. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's very easy to dismiss things when it's coming from someone that you don't know. You can easily just be like, well, they're lying. Whereas when it's your friend, you're like, well, you know why would they lie or why you know you're you're more inclined to give the benefit of the doubt to the people you know i find at least anyway um but so the the 
one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was um, this like, creeping authoritarianism yeah. that we're, we're seeing in the UK. Because, like, this is what concerns me. Um, because, like, okay, so we had the, what, two years of the pandemic. So, um, first lockdowns, et cetera, et cetera. I was, like, totally, totally in favor. Um, but by the time the second ones rolled around, I started to get very concerned that this, like, not that there wasn't a crisis, but that the crisis was being exploited, um, especially by the Conservative Party in, in Britain. Like, I'm not going to speak about other countries, but um, in Britain, at least, like, for example, the handout, like, obscene amounts of money to their donors. And um, now, mainly in this um, vaccine passport ID thing, I just, I... I can't conceive of a situation in which it's a good idea to give any government, especially the Tories, that amount of power in the, like, cause right. It seems really innocuous now, but for me, it's what it is. It's a central controlled pass to access society. And I don't think that should be ever given to at the hands of a government. So I, you make a strong point. <laughs> um, I don't think a vaccine passport was ever really necessary, and I don't think mm. they've come for that reason. I mean, all I, I mean, I'm triple jabbed. I'm a, I'm a, I'm boosted, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, mm. and and I'm happy to follow the advice on that. I'm a middle-aged man, and I know people who who got very, very ill yeah. at my age. In fact, I myself, very early in the pandemic, had something. Mm, yeah, I got uh, floored. <laughs> and I was really ill. In fact, I, I, I've never really thought, am I going to die? But I thought I was going to die. But what I had was prior to cases of coronavirus massively taken off the country. Mm. So I assumed I had some kind of winter flu. Mm. But I live in Lewisham. You know, Lewisham was one of the first places to have identified cases mm. of coronavirus again. So I think I had it early mm. in February uh, 20, whenever it was, 2020. Um, and I was really ill. Mm. And I, could, I couldn't even walk up the very slight incline outside by the hill. And, you know, as I say, I'm a middle-aged man. I have two small children, youngish children. They're teenagers now. And um, I thought I'm, I thought I'm, I'm going to die, mm. I, and I kept thinking I will get better. Yeah, I will get better because it's just a cold or flu, but it didn't go away. Mm. So for weeks I had it, um, and then just at the point I thought because I'm a bloke, I thought you know I've got to go to the hospital. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then typically, <laughs> typically just at the point where I thought, okay, this is this mm. is never going to go away, uh, and I've got some life threatening condition, it eased, mm. and I got better, but very slowly. Mm. Some months after that, and I will come to the answer to your question in a moment, I got a WhatsApp message from uh, a sister of a friend of mine in Indonesia. And I knew I actually had a missed call. And I, you know, I mean, I knew immediately what that meant. Mm. You don't, you don't get a random no. missed WhatsApp call from somebody in Indonesia unless it's bad news. Mm. And lo and behold, my friend Arifa died of coronavirus. Um, he was a bit older than me. He was like 54, 55. And he, he, um, he leaves, he's an Indonesian guy. So he had like five or six children, five children he has. 
and so they've his wife was widowed and the children have lost uh, have lost their father who was a truly truly wonderful man mm. and that really hit me because somebody I knew had now died of coronavirus, although not in this country, in a developing mm. world country. Yeah, but still, what you're talking about is your own, your own experience. Like, it's my, it's again, it's my own experience. Mm. So, to me, um, it suddenly became very real, and I, I found myself getting annoyed with people who were more concerned with the restrictions than the threat this thing posed to millions of people's lives and health. Mm. Um, I do agree with you that it's a really difficult balance that mm. because, you know, anybody who know, has read anything I've ever written will know that I am implacably opposed to this government. Mm. I detest Boris Johnson with every fibre of my being. <laughs> I, I could not be more opposed to this government and their modus operandi. Mm. But the advice was not really coming from the government. It no. was coming from the, the scientists and it was coming from, you know, it, it, was, it was coming from healthcare professionals who were trying to guide us through it. And that's what I kept falling back on. Mm. I kept falling back on, this isn't the government. Mm. This is the science. And uh, that's why I will follow that advice. And that's why I will make sure my children follow that advice. And that's why my wife, even as my father-in-law was dying, followed the advice and did not go and visit her dying father or mm. hold a funeral for him when he died. So, so I know, anger, I know that's, I, you just brush over that, but no, it's, I know. it's, uh, it's, so the, my there's, mother there's, actually also died yeah. in the pandemic. And and in the in the days, the weeks before she died, I knew she was on her way out. I had to have my mask on and all those things. And I did it. Even though I was in a room on my own with my mother, I did it. I wore the mask for the benefit and I and I kept followed through. Yeah. Now, those things I think and and millions of people have had around the world and the hundreds of thousands of people in this country have had similar experiences. We've all got a story of someone we know who lost someone they loved during this pandemic. I think all of us who did the right thing and followed the advice and did what we were told to do, we weren't idiots. Mm. And I don't think we were um, useful idiots or anything like that. I think we were trying for the benefit of everybody to mm. do the right thing. The government has now, and, and this is why I detest them even more this morning than I did. <laughs> than I did yesterday. The government has now made a complete joke out of all of that. It's like they're laughing at everybody's efforts. Yeah. And um, yeah. so to return to your original point, yes. I don't think we should all be given passports or whatever. I do think that if we are um, sharing a space with a number of people like a nightclub or mm. i don't find uh, making everyone take a test to be as insidious a test for example I, yeah, it's, right? it's a, the, a test yeah. and just just to show a bit of respect to the people that you're mingling with yeah and to try and speed this nightmare to its conclusion yeah i don't think that's a bad thing no the, do, the, the I, test I, I, I do feel very strongly that forcing people to have vaccinations is the, going down the road to total totalitarianism mm. and i strongly disapprove of that i do think that if you are dealing with elderly relatives 
as I was with my mother uh, or in a care home mm. and you're not vaccinated and there is evidence that being vaccinated stops you spreading the illness. It's fairly good evidence, I think. Yeah, for I think it? Like there's, I, there's a period at least we yes. know what the, the window is. But yeah, yeah, there's... Like, I, there's I think in those circumstances, I think people should take the vaccinations and it's their choice. Mm. But if they don't want to take the vaccination or if they don't want to wear a mask and if they don't want to operate in a way that will protect those either in their care or those around them, you know, maybe you shouldn't be doing that job. Yeah. 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 Again, no, I don't think a, I don't think we should start sacking people or no. anything like that. But but I think then you get to the absurd position then you get California to absurd position. where yeah. they're sacking the nurses and the positive ones keep working. It's like But um it's a difficult balance, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's that's that's the problem. And I don't think there's a right or a wrong in any of this, really. No. You know. That's that's the other difficult part I mean, about it. It's like people people want to be right. You know, people people want to have said you know, when they were like anti-lockdown from the first moment, they want to be stood there now being like, well, look, I told you I was right. You know, mm. they they want to be correct mm. um, and they're willing to ignore sometimes the suffering of like, yeah, examples like yourself. Well, my, my examples are anecdotal and I, and, you know. I, yeah, but they happen. But they happen to a lot of people, you know. Um, I mean, if what I want is a bit more nuance in life generally. You know, sometimes I'll make a, like a massive error on Twitter or something like that. And you'll get people going, ha, 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 you made a massive error. And do you know what my attitude is? Mm. Yes, I made a massive error. And, yeah. and if I've made a massive error, I put my hands up, mm. I made a massive error. I yeah. said the wrong thing. I did the wrong thing. I got my data wrong. I made a mistake. Yeah. Everybody makes a mistake. What is wrong yeah. in accepting mm. that you made a mistake? Yeah. Yeah, like this is this is the other problem as well. Is and that, people won't do that. No. And as you say, people will pick these positions and then they will stick to them through thick and thin. They won't countenance any nuance or difficulty around it. I mean, I see it with Remainers, actually. You know, the, 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 everything was perfect about the EU, yeah. for example. And everything about Brexit and everything will be about bad. Brexit is bad. Yeah. And, and it's the other way around. And this is the trouble. We are all ending up in little cults. Mm. Yeah. And that's what it's like. And this is why, I don't know if you've seen, um, there's been a lot of discussion about this term, what was it? Mass mass formation psychosis. So I'm actually going to interview the guy who has been this, the, I don't know, the central author on the theory, Matthias Desmet. But when I was listening to, I cannot remember who it was talking about. I think it was Robert, um, Robert Malone. But he was describing the conditions for it. And in my head, I wasn't thinking COVID. When he was talking about it, he was like, look, everything's become uncertain. People have no idea who to believe. And this big, strong, powerful person comes along and says, I'm going to fix all your problems. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how many times do we see that? Yeah. You know, this is not like we can't, we, this isn't, this isn't something that's just magically appeared. No. In the, like the, 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 especially in the last like 10 years, that level of uncertainty that people have about their, yeah. The control of their lives, like to look at the Brexit thing that, you know, people want to have more. But that all came day. out of the financial crisis of 2008. Mm. And, you know, Nazism and fascism flourished in the wake of the Wall Street crash. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, people, people yeah. even actually, people will actually believe their lives are worse even when they're better. Mm. I mean, that's, that's something, uh, again, yeah. which Nazism proved, you know, Post crash, Germany recovered pretty quickly, 
uh, uh, but Germans believed mm. that there were good times to get back. Mm. Brexit is all about getting the good times back that never were. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you believe that the 1970s or 80s or 60s were better than today, you're living in cloud cuckoo land. Yeah. I mean, they're better and worse, I think. Like, like for example, well, I don't know. Do you know Mark, Mark E. Thomas? He's the head of uh, 99%. Um, he makes the case that, say, we'd had the growth that we had in the 1970s over the past 10 years, that we'd be looking at a much stronger economy. Yeah. Um, which I find an interesting conception because he points at the 1980s as the point where the economy changed from being built for the um, benefit of everyone or to being uh, like to move towards being to the benefit of the you know, the 1% essentially. And, and, and I can't. Yeah, I don't want to speak like that. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, the, there's always been a very small minority of very rich people. Mm. Uh, owning everything you know and people yeah. people's rights back in the 70s and 80s oh yeah fairly basic i mean you yeah. know i remember the 80s very well i was a teenager you know i, I mean the, again the famous uh, you know we talk about cancel culture and all that stuff <laughs> where i remember clearly Sinn Féin representatives not being allowed to blinking talk on television but they had yeah. to get actors to speak their words <laughs> Don't talk to me about council culture, um, you know. And um, there was all the huge. Yeah. We had the Christian huge, conservative right. Were all the councillors then? Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I mean, I can't quite remember, but I remember my, I remember my sister going to see Life of Brian in my older sister in whenever that was, nineteen eighty, eighty one. Um, I remember the Last Temptation of Christ coming out in eighty eight or eighty nine, and a picket. I was at university in Canterbury. And there was a picket of people outside the cinema trying to Christians trying to convince people not yeah. to go in. Yeah. Um, so again, cancel culture is new. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and but also there's this very dangerous thing, and as you know, it's my obsession in my book and most of the things I write. There's there's this very dangerous dip that was once something great, mm. and we've all lost it, and we need to get back to it. Yeah. And that's not true. Mm. Yeah, people romanticize what yeah. those those like older times would have been like. Because yeah. I say, I say to basically everyone, it's like, are you seriously telling me that you don't want to live right now? Like, honestly, we have the 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 least violent, yeah, like the the least war, um, the most like diversity, the most acceptance of people, um, the the easiest access to information, education. Um, like the list goes on, you yeah. know, like uh, terms of, okay, you know, maybe we're making a little bit more or a little bit less than we were, um, like in, in real terms than maybe but 20 years ago. Yeah, but you see food. So before, food should probably be more 70s, expensive. Back in the seventies, I can't remember the figure off the top of my head. It is in my, I, I, I'm pretty, something like 30, um, this is a guess. So anybody listening to this one who <laughs> check, fact check me, something like, 30% of household budget went on food. What? Yeah, it was a huge, I can't, I can't remember the exact figure. It was between 20 and 30%. You'll have to fact check it now. So in the early 70s, a huge proportion of household expenditure went on food. I might be exaggerating at 30%, but it was definitely well over 20. Let's see what Google says. 
password budget. Oh, here we go. Maybe this uh, it's from the Food and Drink Federation. It's not the right one. Executive summary. Anyway, yeah. Nowadays, it's a fraction of that, and even with inflation, I think it's eight or nine percent. That's that's not very much, really, no. in the, in the grand no, scheme no, no, of no. things. People spent a lot more money on basic essentials in the past. Mm. So, what do you think? Well, I guess that that expense we has been. We don't think yeah. that. We yeah. think it was the other way around. We think in the past that there was the land of plenty and that mm. everything was cheap, but yeah. it wasn't. And 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 what was available wasn't very plentiful either. Yeah. And the range of produce wasn't mm. so 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 good or fresh or, or widely available. You know, people ate tinned food for most of the night and frozen food for most of the seventies and eighties. Most people were eating fairly crappy diets. Mm. The reason everybody was thin was because everyone smoked and died of lung cancer. <laughs> Yeah, I do also get the feeling they had a slightly less sedentary lifestyle than and we did. They had a less sedentary lifestyle, yeah, um, and yeah, and less, less, less refined less sugar. Less yeah, food. yeah. So, so I mean, no, yeah. I mean, I saw this amazing thing the other day. It was a, it was just a stupid meme, but it was someone say it was like what what people think people from the past would be impressed about and like it's an iPhone and it's like what they'd really be impressed about and it was like the full stock shelf as, as at Tesco's. It's like food from all around the world, yeah. perfectly available. And I was like, that's pretty accurate, actually. I don't think, you know, people would just be, I think that's the thing that would yeah, potentially yeah, yeah. blow people yeah. away. I remember when I first saw an avocado, uh, and it was in France in 8081. Now, I'm sure avocados were available in the UK, yeah, but I, we didn't eat avocados. And uh, my parents took me on holiday, and we went to stay with some French friends. Uh, outside Paris and um, they were eating shrimp and avocado and I, I, I had this we always have to be careful of memory mm. because have I invented the memory but I, I'm 90% certain I have not invented the memory I remember sitting there and they were eating this green fruit on a plate and I thought what who are what are these people these heathens <laughs> Have they never heard of frozen pizza? Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, I remember being totally sort of disgusted by French food and, and like they would dip their croissant into their hot chocolate. It's just disgusting. These people are really, un, they're really unsophisticated. Yeah, and of nice. course it was completely yeah. the other way around, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, maybe that's just the French. We just don't maybe like just it, yeah. the French, whatever yeah. the French are doing. Um, but I'm interested to to kind of go back here because you were talking about sort of the 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 other side of this, like the bounce back and what we might see as like a positive yeah. result. Um, and one of the things actually that I noticed in the last few days that I think is going to be a really positive result is I think that media organizations are going to actually attempt to give us the news. Um, maybe this is a pipe dream, but for example, CNN has been bought by, I cannot remember the name of the guy, but their coverage has noticeably changed of late in, in they've sacked all the like pure opinion people mm -hmm. and they seem to be moving towards a more like just sort of here's the news style of reporting, which is unbelievable mm -hmm. um, because like, yeah, so CNN have just... Well, the BBC yeah. are up there going during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, um, the obsession with facts 
facts has come back, mm. the fact checking and the um the and the calling out of conspiracy theorists mm. and the stuff like that. I mean, I they've I feel they've really upped their game since 2016. There was an obsession with balance during the Brexit era, uh, and they're not giving platforms so much to to people with bonkers opinions basically uh like there's a place for the bonkers there opinions. is a place for the bonkers <laughs> opinions it's called gb news yeah. but you could oh, well it's uh, podcasts like yeah. this you know people oh, can just have fun you know? like <laughs> um but yeah i i think that there's a return to bats i think there's a return to respect for expertise and a return to respect for people who actually know what they're talking about mm. yeah um which is a good thing and i think probably there's a hankering after a slightly more boring way of doing government. We've all lived through this kind of mad cavalcade of, mm. of politics. And um, maybe, or maybe it's just a pipe dream on my behalf, <laughs> maybe Britain is is hankering after a more Joe, Sleepy Joe type politics. Uh, I mean, I don't maybe. think, a, not necessarily a Joe Biden, but a a safer pair of hands so uh, and uh, a willingness for us to, to think about sensible things for a change, you know, rather than, I mean, it's being crazy. I do say to my kids, yeah. I say, do say to my kids, you do realise you have lived like through the yeah. maddest period of politics i can ever remember i don't it's it's been like a cartoon yeah it's been like living in a live action simpsons <laughs> it is yeah yeah it's 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 completely it's bonkers, bonkers. yeah it yeah. is bonkers but like and, and i think we're addicted to the drama but if they, <laughs> if they weren't running a country and if you know and I, you know i'm engaged in it and well, you are in our own small ways we're all engaged in it and you know Riding that helter-skelter can sometimes be very amusing, but what worries me is long-term, you can't run a country like this. No. People need certainty, and there are real lives at stake and real jobs and real careers. And the stuff which fed into Boris Johnson's success in the 2019 election and Brexit, mm. the, the way that many people, particularly in the North, have felt left behind and their communities um, decimated in many cases, and a lack of opportunity and a lack of optimism, all of those things need to be addressed. And, and those are great challenges. No one's doing anything about it. They talk, all they do is talk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty bad. But like, right, uh, one part of me thinks maybe you're right. Maybe Britain will just look at Keir Starmer and just go, okay, please, we just want to ignore you for four years. Yeah. Like, just go govern. And, you know, the other part of me thinks we're too addicted to the drama. Yeah. And that we we couldn't possibly conceive of a boring... Well, I call, like, like I call it, and I don't think I coined the phrase, but I call it polytainment. <laughs> <laughs> and so people like Lawrence Fox, the poly, it's poly, no, but it's, poly, it's polytainment. That it's kind of, I mean, I find I'm addicted to it as well. I kind of go and look at Lawrence Fox's Twitter feed, and I, I try and stop myself. It's like a guilty pleasure. What crazy thing has he said next? Uh -huh. um, you know, and the GB News presenters to some extent, and this this cartoonizing of of political life. I do genuinely think that if you put a sensible person in charge, just as in 1997, mm. but you know. 
Tony Blair pre, you know, yeah. crazy yeah. war Lord Tony yeah. Blair. Um, you know, before, and he's before, early, before bit, George Bush went. It's a bit like Think about Bob the money Dylan, you'll make afterwards. Bob like. Dylan before he went electric. <laughs> uh, it's, um, I, I do think, I mean, that was a good period. Was a good, again, I'm now being nostalgic yeah, for, yeah, my, yeah. for my youth and long hair. But the... Um, it was good. It was good to have someone sensible in charge. Liam Gallagher could still sing. And Liam Gallagher like, could still <laughs> sing. Yeah. yeah. No, there's. Yeah, I. I don't know. I'm. I'm skeptical about Keir Starmer. Um, oh, I think we all are. I just. I. I want him to be like come up with come out with basically like something along the lines of Corbyn's 2017 manifesto, maybe a few things stripped out there, pulled back a little bit. But that manifesto was like broadly popular with the British public. It was only once she like attached it to Corbyn that it got a little well, bit less popular. That, but who actually reads manifesto? Well, I mean, to be fair, that one, I did actually see a lot of social media, um, especially young people who said it was the first manifesto they'd ever read and they were genuinely inspired by it. And I thought that was something not to take lightly. Um, at least, uh, maybe, maybe, and I don't know. Maybe the coverage was like po too positive of it, or I, I don't know. But it seemed that people, at least, the ideas that Corbyn was putting forward, when you didn't associate them with him, were popular. It was once you put it in that package, and I think mm. Keir Starmer is attempting, or he could he could get away with that, where he'd go with the same ish manifesto, but with his like forensic, sensible, you know, milk toast brand of politics. But then at the same time, I'm like. I don't trust you to do that. I believe that once, if Keir Starmer was to become, to come to power, that he would just become Blair 2.0 and all of the same mistakes would be made and that we would see very I little difference. I can't see Keir Starmer. I mean, okay, maybe aside I, I, from I, I, I am, you know, I am not a Keir Starmer fan. Uh, I, I would rather have him in charge than Boris Johnson or Liz Trust. Yeah. And, and I think in my mind, the next ambition is that it's to change that narrative It's to get the conservatives who've caused such damage to this country out and to get some fairly sensible administration in and and you know i suppose it's like going to a uh, it's like deciding to go out for dinner and then just finding that there are three restaurants available <laughs> Uh, yeah, and picking the one where there's not a fight going on in the bar, you know, uh, I would. <laughs> I mean, that's maybe that's maybe what what, what I'm up to. I, mm -hmm. I think we need to get to that stage. There are so many things that this country needs to do, and there are so many things that need to change. You know, we need, and and maybe, and, I, and again, this is just me being optimistic. Maybe one of the few benefits of Brexit is that mm. it's stripped away the sort of um, shelter of, of, of the EU that we can always blame for everything else. And it's exposed British democracy for what it is. Mm. You know, you've got the House of Lords, you've got a monarchy, yeah. which I... Unelected bureaucrats. Yeah, know. well, an unelected <laughs> monarch. I mean, you know, no disrespect to the Queen, but once she's gone, I really can't see that lasting very long. No, this is why I don't want her to die. Like, I'm not a big royalist or anything. But it's like the last thing holding the country together is the Queen. Yeah. <laughs> and I know that sounds insane, but I just think that for some reason, like once she dies, then it's like in my head, it's like Her mother's gone. Yeah. yeah. Or like when 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 um 
when Odin dies in Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> and like, Hela appears. I mean, like, on the other hand, when the Queen dies, people will start to have a serious conversation about why we have a monarchy. Mm. And that, that pulling at that thread is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm. Because I don't want another thread to pull up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like it's talking talk about other threads. Yeah. But it's like someone's sitting there with like a a, a plate and a, a big monstrous pile of food that they're trying to like deal with and someone just like shoveling more yeah, on their no, plate. No, you're the all right, time. all right. Unfortunately I don't think she can go on forever. No. Anyway. <laughs> we'll cross that. Yeah, cross that revolution when we get to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I want the I want the extra bank holiday if she manages to make it through this That's year. All my children say. Yeah. When we talk about the Queen dying, all they say will we get a holiday. Well, it's like which, that's the which only kind of, which kind of you know they both got their heads very firmly screwed on and are both kind of very aware of politics. That's their only interest in monarchy is will we get a holiday if the Queen dies? I mean. <laughs> I mean, but that's the that's the realest way it'll impact their lives. Yes, I know. I mean, <laughs> I want to have the broader conversation about the, you know, mm. anyway. about how much they, yeah. they bring to Britain. I don't know because I've seen many many statistics about how they bring more into. Oh Britain. well, I I'm a Republican, so I'm yeah. that rarest of things. Somebody who's willing to say it as well, but I I do think in time that will come. Mm. Yeah, no, I think you're probably right. Yeah. I mean, I'd say that it's more. Just because we don't have the Queen living in Buckingham Palace doesn't mean we can't still have Buckingham Palace for the oh, tourists. Yeah, well, you know, France has done fairly well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's there's plenty of countries. <laughs> the United States. Yeah. Yeah. Germany. Germany. Yeah. Italy. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I'm Germany. not sure. I would. I'm not sure. I would use. Actually, right now, I'm not sure I'd use any of these countries as good examples. Yeah. But people still go on holiday to them, though. Well, true. Yeah. <laughs> America is going to be. What do you think is going to happen with that that next election? Well, I can't see Trump coming back. No, no, he's too old, and and people didn't vote for Joe Biden. People voted against Trump. Mm. I think also people didn't vote against, or I also think people didn't vote as many people didn't vote for Trump as voted against Joe Biden in a way. Mm. Because well, yeah, well, Trump got like a, like nine or ten million more votes the second time round. Which is just, to me, it's incredible. Welcome to the culture war, Josh. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that it's, um, it, was, it was really ultimately nothing about the two boxers in the ring. It was about the crowd braying. Mm. Uh, and uh, it comes back to your point earlier, earlier on about the whole polarization of society. And... Um, that's what it was. It was picking a team, mm. you know. It's like, but see, part of me feels like it's not been long enough for me to know if this is accurate or not. Do you want me to shut that curtain? Yeah, go on. How dare the sunset? That's better. Where was I? Oh, yeah, right, okay. So it hasn't been long enough for me to figure out if this is actually the case. But part of me feels like Trump was a necessary evil because I think that the... So I kind of believe that in Britain we have a pretty much a one-party system. 
because the same people are basically funding the the Labour Party and the, the Conservative Party. Like as far as that's my understanding of it, or my yeah, you know, I could be wrong, but my my view my view is that basically they that both parties essentially are uh, hoping to continue some form of neoliberalism, and I think we need something different. And I think the American two main parties made the same mistakes, and I think that what happened in twenty sixteen was. Um, Obama came to power and said in 2008 and went, right, okay, we're going to change things. We're going to make things better. And for a huge portion of the people who voted for him thinking this was going to change, like yeah. nothing changed. And then Hillary Clinton came up and went, well, everything's great. Why would we change anything? America's awesome. And everyone went, hang on, things are getting worse for us. Like you need to listen to what we're saying, like places like Michigan and that were really hurting from, yeah, economic damages that ne they never recovered from 2008 and and the the democrats like put up this candidate's just like yeah we're just going to keep doing that that's not helping you and they didn't learn they didn't learn shit and then in 2020 they did the, the, the exact same thing they didn't learn a single thing and they i think that well they had to suffer these horrendous situations where like 70 80 million people are willing to vote for the former, like the, the guy who ran The Apprentice. Yes, and um, that's who they voted for. Yeah, and but I mean, like they basically, they basically voted for a reality TV star. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I can imagine a situation one day where you've got a Kardashian in the White House. I, oh, yeah. I genuinely see that, mm. or a TikToker. Mm. Uh, and I thought Kanye was the best option at the last election. <laughs> that's that's serious, serious. Point. I watched his his Joe Rogan interview. And right at the end, after some fucking around, Joe asked him like a couple of really serious questions. And they asked him about like, what happens if there's like war in Syria or someone invades Iran? And he sat there for like 40 seconds. Like, and you could tell he was genuinely thinking about what to say. And he gets this beautiful answer about um, like, how he would, you know, well, first he talked about praying. I'm like, I'm not sure that's like the greatest situation, but like, it means that he would like take time to consider the consequences of his actions. And I have never fucking seen a politician give an answer that honest. Mm -hmm. And I was like, holy shit, Kanye's the best option. <laughs> I don't think you're right. <laughs> yeah, I know. Maybe it's a little. <laughs> it's an interesting thing. Yeah. But, like, you know, he no, 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 than... again, you know, that we've got these systems of government which are legacy systems of government. Yeah. You know, so the, the American Constitution is what? more than 200 years old and has become like a holy gospel yeah. you know anybody <laughs> and uh, my right to bear arms is there in the constitution well, change the bloody constitution then you know, a, but it's like changing the ten commandments mm. nobody will do it mm. um and it's the same here you know uh, we've got the oldest democracy in the world that's not necessarily a good thing yeah. <laughs> if I if I say I've got the oldest, you know, the oldest boiler in the street, yeah, it's not. Everyone's going, oh, like, I've got the oldest cake for your good, birthday. It's good for him. <laughs> He's got the oldest boiler in the street. Yeah. I've got the oldest car on the road. Yeah. Wow, that's good, isn't it? Yeah. It it might be good, great that it's old, mm. but it doesn't mean that the emissions are brilliant or that the car functions well. Mm. So you, the idea that something is old is automatically good is mm. is is a bit of a misnomer. And mm. the the um, yeah, I mean the America, the whole electoral college thing, the whole of American democracy is ready for a massive overhaul. Mm. As is British democracy. Mm. You know who and when and how that will ever be done, I don't know because they've all become sacred things. Mm. See, I'm working on a. 
very slowly working on a project. I call it the big review of Britain. Maybe we'll get it done this year. Maybe. Maybe. But I basically want to try and get as many people like yourself, mm -hmm. and economists, professors, maybe even a politician or two, but I'd rather keep them out of it. Until <laughs> but I want, I want to get, because I, I speak to, I've, I've had the chance to speak to so many brilliant people who have like unbelievable understanding of all of the problems that we're facing in Britain, you know, from, from climate change to like lack of democratic participation to the, you know, the, the influence of global finance on, you know, the yeah Westminster and just, they all understand what the problems are, right? Mm. It's not like we have a lack of understanding mm. of like how, maybe not even what exactly we do about it, but the things we want to address at a very basic level. Um, and yet that conversation never goes anywhere. It, it, like there's no, there's no movement beyond it. And I, I, I would like to get as many smart people as possible in a room and be like, right, I think we you know, know what the answers to all the problems are. I mean, I'm no expert. I'm just a bloke on Twitter who writes things. But, the, but, but a lot of people know what the problems are, but it's, there's no political will to change them. I mean, a really, one, a really good example of this is drugs policy. Mm. Right? The, the so-called war on drugs which is a complete waste of time and money and effort and lives, mm. actually, because people get locked up for possession, people get locked up for dealing, you've got county lines, all of that stuff going on. You can solve that problem. You can by legalising drugs, right? Mm. And any analysis of it shows that's the best thing to do. Yeah. And... Probably most politicians know that, but you will not find a politician in this country, apart from maybe in the Greens or the Liberal Democrats, willing to stand up yeah. and say, we will legalise drugs. Yeah. Because nobody is willing to make that case. Because the moment somebody said that on Question Time or something like that, the, the crowd would descend, the tabloids would descend, probably even though loads of the journalists writing those articles You're like have either can't, have believe, either, they, oh, can't believe they want cocaine yeah, <laughs> terrible yeah but, but um you can't have a sensible discussion about it mm. you can't have a sensible discussion really about the queen in mm. this country or the monarchy mm. yeah you can't you can't really have a sensible discussion in england at least about the army you know, yeah. you, 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 these are things you are not allowed to have a sensible discussion about. Um, and that's at the root of a lot of the problem. Got a lot of sacred cards. I mean, when my kids, when I tell my kids that I think that marijuana should be legalized, they look at me like I'm some kind of psychopath. Mm -hmm. Your kids? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's because, actually a fair point. Yeah, because this, they this don't expect their father I was gonna say, to be saying we need to legalize weed. They don't expect it. Yeah. Right? I then say it doesn't mean you can all go out and stuff. That's what you Yeah, but like, but they don't expect their father to be have that position. And I was quite clear on that position from quite early on in their childhoods. Mm. But, but because uh, I, I, it's just a patently bad idea to, to to have it illegal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, it like I think that like the this the myth that it's a gateway drug is because it happens because people have it vilified as mm. a really bad illegal thing. They try it, they go, oh, well, 
what was all the fuss about? And then automatically, implicitly, everything else that's illegal, they're suddenly going, why is the why are the other things illegal? Is it just the same as this? Well, that's true. Did you know what the iron law of prohibition is? No, but I mean, so I can, the iron law of prohibition is that if you come down hard on things, they become stronger. Hmm. So during the uh, American prohibition era, but prior to that, most Americans drank beer, right? Hmm. If you shift beer around, there's a lot of it, and it's, it's bulky. Hmm. Much easier sell whiskey right because it's small bottles it's a stronger drink mm. so whiskey became the the drink of choice during prohibition as did drugs because a lot of people don't realize this but during prohibition cocaine use in america went through the roof no way <laughs> <laughs> because it's easier to smuggle and it's right. a stronger hit. Mm. So w when you've got times of prohibition, now the same thing has happened with with weed. You know, tw tw in, in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a fairly laissez-faire attitude to drugs. You know, I mean, when I was at university, people would sit quite openly smoking dope. You know, I mean, it was, it was uh, nobody did anything about it. Uh, in common rooms and bars, you know, people just smoked. But yeah. Yeah, literally in the open. <laughs> Right in the open. Oh. Um, and although my, I was at the University of Kent, which was a very libertarian, left-wing, whatever, uh, but people would just sit around smoking it. Over time, as uh, there's been more crackdowns, more stop and search, et cetera, the, the weed has got stronger. It's the iron law of prohibition. They, the the uh, you know skunk and things like that mm. weren't around 30 years ago. yeah. You get some real yeah. melon stuff these yeah. days, <laughs> but um, so to 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 move towards wrapping up because yeah. we've uh, yeah sorry no 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 it's all rambling right rambling on no don't worry at all this is what podcast this is what podcasts are for <laughs> rambling on mindlessly. Uh, <laughs> so where what was the last thing I wanted to ask you about? All right, Julian Assange. So should he be deported? <laughs> I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> um, we should have started with Assange because I mean, okay. I have very mixed feelings about Julian Assange, right? I have very mixed feelings about WikiLeaks. Uh, and that's because one of my other obsessions is Russian interference in things, mm. right? Now, WikiLeaks is not a front for Vladimir Putin. No. It is a proper grassroots organization. Um, but the democratic email leak mm. in whenever that was, uh, was found and assumed by everybody to have been a Russian hack. Mm. And the people who leaked it were WikiLeaks. So all of that stuff makes me feel uncomfortable. Mm. All of the fact that Assange has been supported and backed by Russia Today, RT, mm. uh, that he had a program, I believe, on RT at one point. That makes me very uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot There's a lot of like left-wingers who have been given a platform by Russia Today. Yeah. And I don't think it's because they are implicitly pro-Russian. Pro I think it's because the Russians are implicitly anti-establishment because it stirs well, the, division. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the RT is, is a operation to stir discontent in other countries while putting no voice of criticism for Russia. Yeah. You know, 
one of mm. the worst regimes on the planet. Mm. You know, with a with a leader who has done all sorts of you know anyway. Yeah. Those things make me uncomfortable. The the original big leak of data on uh, U.S. military operations mm. made me feel uncomfortable. Ordinary soldiers and and members mm. of the American military who had signed up, whose names and addresses were suddenly being flashed around the world, it makes me uncomfortable. What WikiLeaks was very bad at was sifting through the material mm. and saying that's relevant. They should not have done this massive data leak where ordinary people got their details, bank cards, all those things thrown out. Mm. So those things make me uncomfortable. Also. When Assange uh, was originally, um, you know, when the Swedish authorities basically wanted to question him when he was on bail and he did a runner into the Ecuadorian embassy mm. um, and then stay there for 10 years or whatever, however long he was there, seven, eight, nine years, all that time saying, I'm a prisoner here, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I do understand why he had legitimate concerns about being deported to the United States. And the people who said he didn't have legitimate concerns about being deported to the United States have now been proved wrong, mm. right? Yeah. So coming on to that part of the debate, yes, there are legitimate concerns. Mm. And I do, the, the whole, um, you know, Amnesty International have come out in favour of Assange. They've said that there are legitimate concerns about process, due process. Yeah, and well, I mean, it'll be, be tried under the Espionage Act. Well, be well, behind... given a fair trial. Yeah. <laughs> um, other people have suggested that he might serve 178 years or something bonkers like that. I mean, obviously, he won't serve 178 years. No. Um, <clears throat> so, yes, I feel uncomfortable about all of those things. Um, yes, I, on those issues of deporting Assange to America, I think I'm probably on the side of Assange, mm. but I'm not on this side of Julian Assange himself. Mm, okay. Yeah, I see what you mean. I <laughs> guess the nuanced position. Yeah, well, I mean, that's yeah, yeah. what we've been screaming for all, all, all <laughs> afternoon, isn't it? Um, like, I guess it comes down to this, this, this like question is um, like, what should, what is responsible to tell the public? Because in like part of me is like, we should know everything. And then there's obviously like situations in which secrecy is important for a government running military operations or like, you know, there's there's things that is would not be conducive even to the public interest for the public to be fully aware of. So if you are some young American kid and you're walking through a shopping mall in Delaware mm. and somebody comes up to you and says, oh, the US military will pay for your college education, as happens with thousands of Americans. Mm. Thousands of Americans are recruited into the armed forces that way. Um, a good percentage are told they'll have their college fees paid. That's why you get a lot of poorer Americans joining the US mm. they, the army. They, they believe they will be given an education and they are given an education and they pay it back by being in the US military. Those people say five, ten years down the line, there's a massive leak by WikiLeaks, and suddenly Steve in Delaware's address and things. Mm. Is that in the interest no. of Steve in Delaware? Of course it's not. Yeah. Who's that in the interest of? Nobody. No. So what WikiLeaks, what WikiLeaks could have done 
And I'm not going to give them advice, but what WikiLeaks could have done was to sift through the information. Mm. And people within WikiLeaks left WikiLeaks because of this. They mm. said, you've just thrown out all this data yeah. and innocent people's data and details. Vis-a-vis yeah. -vis things like the Iraq war and the dodgy dossier mm. and the reasons for going to war in the first place, if somebody had leaked that information then, that would have been a magnificent thing. If somebody had said, look, they've made it all up and 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 here's the, here it is. Mm. Do you think people would have cared? Because um, like, it seems like a lot of the stuff that was in the Steele dossier was t turned out to be like not based on much. I mean, there was obviously Russian attempts to, like it definitely wasn't in their worst interest for Trump to become president. But there wasn't like, I don't know, the, yeah, they, they, they basically said the Steele dossier was not based on very much and no one really cared. You didn't really see people being like, well, that wasn't, you know, we, we did the whole impeachment thing for, we did Mueller's 18 month investigation and brought up not very much. And I'm like, well, we're, you know, if, if like, it seems like if, if you, if the case was as strong as people made it out to be, and I believed it to be when I was listening to them, I was like, why is he not impeached? And then I was like, why the fuck are you not going for the emoluments clause? Mm. Like he's profiting off the presidency. That's the literal thing that you yeah, can yeah, just yeah. display. And I personally think they didn't go for that because then um, the Republicans would do it to any Democratic president who came in and well, uh, who made any money off the presidency. Impeach, but and this is the other problem with American politics. They're constantly trying to impeach each other, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, so well, they just um, no, I'm not defending Bill Clinton, but then, <laughs> I don't think even Bill Clinton would defend Bill Clinton. But the, the, but the, um, yeah, that kind of tit for tatting of, um, oh, God, I mean, yeah, it's, I think, I think, hopefully, what we're agreeing here is it's the systems that are fundamentally flawed and probably not fit for purpose. No, and that those things need an overhaul, and no one's ever going to do that. Mm. So, well, we'll, I'm we'll still, still be sitting here in ten years. Uh, no, I'm young enough to be optimistic still about uh, it. No. Good luck. <laughs> Give me 10 years. I'll be cynical. No. I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic, but I no longer think a lot of these things will happen in my lifetime. Whereas when I was in my 20s, I did think these things would happen. And I also thought when I was in my 20s and teens, why can't anybody else sort of see what, what's wrong? And, um, and I still... <laughs> <laughs> still think that. <laughs> I still think that. Yeah. Oh, well... I guess we'll see. Yeah. But um, Otto, it's been a pleasure. It's been a great, great, great chat. Yeah, uh, a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, so do you, want, do you want to plug anything before we finish here? Uh, just keep on keeping on. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, my book's coming out in paperback in February, WH Smith's, and April elsewhere. Uh, and people like my Audible. There you so go. Give Jeff Bezos more money. Exactly. He he needs another. <laughs> he, really, he needs another rocket. How would he build another rocket? Yeah. You know, people. Jeff Jeff Bezos only has. We need some like some of that like charity music, and we'll go black and white. It's yeah, like, yeah. Jeff Bezos needs your money. Yes. Some yeah. sad pictures of Jeff <laughs> picking up his last billion dollars. <laughs> Jeff, oh, yeah. How will Jeff afford his rocket? <laughs> For just a hundred million pounds yeah. an hour, yeah. you could help take this. <laughs> just a billion. <laughs> Jeff, build another. <laughs> oh, but anyway, okay. thanks everyone for listening. Thanks very much. <laughs> thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. 
If you want to leave us a comment, that would be awesome. Please like, share, subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.